Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications, produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is sponsored by the Communications Network and the Lumina Foundation. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena just a little bit more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast, and you can email us at hello at Let's Hear Cast.com. Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And if you like the show, please, please, please rate us on Apple Podcasts so that more people can find us. So let's get on to the show. Welcome back to Let's Hear It. Once again, we're in for another treat. This week, Eric talks with Kristen Grimm the head of Spitfire Strategies, a group that probably many of us know, and in fact, many of us maybe have worked with or worked around in one way or another because Spitfire has done really remarkable work in the foundation and nonprofit communication space for, I'm going to say forever, though Kristen actually gives us an age for the firm in your interview, Eric, but Give us a little bit about what we're going to hear this week. This was awesome, by the way. This was awesome. Yeah, Spitfire is the Elvis of nonprofit communications because (laughs) Elvis is everywhere. And Kristen is everywhere. (laughs) Wherever I go, there she is. She is, uh, yeah, um, I ran into her at the Frank conference. Well, by by the time this thing is on the air... We'll have a Democratic <laughs> president, I hope, but uh, <laughs> because, <laughs> because we're kind of a little, I don't know, we're, we're stockpiling. Yeah, uh, right. As, as the nuclear stockpile uh, increases, <laughs> we are stockpiling yeah. episodes. So the Frank Conference was in February, early February, and who knows by the time this thing hits the air. Yeah. But I ran into Kristen and grabbed her. Of course, it was not exactly un- it was not unpremeditated. Is that right? It's a d- double negative, but I like it uh, because I did, <laughs> I did have my microphone. That was the good news. The bad news is I still don't know how to use it. So th- we still have a little <laughs> bit boomy sound. We're getting there. I think by, the, <laughs> by my New Year's resolution is to have a, one spiffy sounding episode. But Kristen is, she's been uh, I, working on nonprofit social interest communications for as long as I've been doing it. And I've been doing it for 20 yeah. years. And she yeah. was a, a um, leader teacher of mine back in my DC days. And she continues I, I from this interview. I mean, it was so much fun to speak with her. Oh, by the way, if Daniel Silverman is listening to the podcast, <laughs> I just urge you not to listen at two times speed. Like you usually do with podcasts because your head will come off. Kristen speaks a little fast, but it's just because she has so damn much to say. And I tell her, you know, I learned from her. I told her how much she teaches me. And even in this interview, I learned a ton and you can see how her own thinking is changing. So that's, I think, the mark of a terrific, just a, a, a terrific any, a person who learns is, is you know, it's, it's just I I take a lot away. That, that was really articulate, wasn't it? <laughs> just like the, the stammering Woody Allen, but uh, but so no, we're she keeps. It. It's good. We're it, it, it stays in. <laughs> the kid stays in the picture. It's in. The, no, but she she continues to learn and she continues to think and see things outside of her. And I should only do that. You know, my my wife tells me this uh, ever, but it, I think she's an inspiration to us all. Yeah, you know, there was a lot that I loved about this. And, um, but one thing I want to say right up front, in case people can only listen to a little bit and not listen to all the way to the end, but you tell Kristen, thank you. And I loved, loved, loved hearing that. And I want to say it again here too. And we'll talk more at the end, but Kristen's influence in this field actually extends probably far beyond she even understands. And, um, it's been overwhelmingly positive. And so, we all owe a big thanks to Kristen and we owe a thanks to you for tracking her down. And of course, a thanks to her for uh, doing this backstage at a conference, but it, it's a great listen. I love it. Why? Thank you. There you go. Are you ready to go? All right. Let's, let's listen to Kristen. Okay. We'll talk after. All right. I am here with the one and the only Kristen Grip. 
the chief everything of Spitfire Strategies. And I'm so thrilled to be sitting here talking with you because for one thing, I get to say thank you for having taught me everything I know. I mean, kind of did. <laughs> I think you came to the table with a few things. You yeah. taught me I mean, much. They, they say if you steal from one, it's plagiarism. If you steal from many, it's research. Oh. And what I've done is way research. I see. You're even creating new words. Yes, that's Interesting. right. Interesting. All right. So anyway, so thank you so much. Um, actually, we're here sitting here at the Frank gathering. Yes, we are. Which is something you helped start as well, did you not? That is true. Can, well, let's just start with that. And then we're going to work our way back, backward and then we're going to work our way forward. How's that sound? Sounds good to me. Okay. So how did this thing get started? So Frank, uh, as you know, Frank Carell, a very important person to public interest communications. And he did a number of things, including creating the communication network, which I know is near and dear to your heart. Um, he also endowed a chair here. Um, and Anne Christiana was the first one. And she really wanted to figure out one of the things we were supposed to be doing was building the public interest communication field and diversifying it. And we already had really thought about some fellows, which Andy Burness really got behind. And Anne said, let's all come down and have tea. And let's think about what we need to do. And maybe we'll do a gathering. And we definitely all came down here to kill the gathering. We were like, we don't need another gathering. We go to a million gatherings. This is like, we don't want this. Stop gathering. Stop gathering. And we Disperse. were like, no. So, but we got down here and we realized we did really want another gathering because we realized that the science piece of it was really missing, that we didn't always know what worked. And so we were like, if we do that, really valuable. So we could say, people say it's the sixth Frank this year, but it's really six and a half because we came to Frank Camp. Got it. And came up with this. And then there were a lot of us that worked really hard to try and make this a gathering worth coming to. Oh, so now I want to go all the way back to... Your <laughs> to, to your beginnings in communications. Yes. Now, without uh, dating anybody at all, you've been at this for a couple of years. It's true. It's true. Al Gore had not yet created the internet. He had not created the internet. No, he had not yet created the. Was internet. he tinkering right. with the internet? I think. I think he was a little tinkering. I think it was like a maker moment for him. Well, that, and uh, yeah. Okay, so let's go back to the the the. The early Kristen. Yes. And so how do you get involved in communications? Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I, I want to be a communications person. It's, it is totally true. I, uh, I was a failed law student. Um, I had just graduated Smith. I was totally into the University of Florida, which we were sitting at. The irony is not lost on me at this very moment. Okay. And I was supposed to be going to law school, which my lawyer father was like, yes, this is exactly what's supposed to happen with my daughter. And then right before graduating, I thought, no more school right now. And my father, rightly so, said, you are unemployable. And as an Irish history major, I have to say he sort of had a point. So I jumped in. <laughs> Wait, my, you're, you, you studied Irish history or you're Irish and you were a history major? I was totally Irish history was my major. Got it. And uh, so I jumped in my little RX-7 because those were still around then. Those and I drove down to Washington, D.C. And I was like, I better find myself a job. And luckily, I found Chris Carty, who really? many of us know, who was at the time a higher up at Fenton Communications. And he said, we have an internship. And I said, I have nothing to do. Um, and so he hired me. Whoa. And that is how I got my start. I did not know that. And, and uh, how did you end up at Fenton? You just, there was a door, there was a help wanted sign on the. Yeah. It was really like a posting, like old school, at like the career development office or something. Um, and I called ahead and he was like, sure, I'll meet with you. And then he asked me, you know, are you good on the phone? And I was like, oh, my God, I am great on the phone. I've had a phone <laughs> since I was 13. I thought, of course, he meant, like, can I keep, you know, boys on a phone, which I, you know. And what he really meant was, could I pitch the New York Times? Right. Actually, very similar skill. Is very it? similar skill. Talking yeah. to boys on the phone. Just keeping people Times. on the phone, right? Like, I mean, I've been honing that skill. As my father said, get off the phone. Like, <laughs> I have been honing this skill for a vast majority of my life. So I actually became a quite good publicist because I keep anybody on the phone. That's amazing. How long were you? How, what was your progression at Fenton? You went from yes. on the phone interns. Yes, exactly. Eventually, you became so right. I major I started as an intern. I ended up their president. Not that summer. Um, I uh, actually stayed there for about three and a half, four years. Um, I left for a couple of years. I went over to Millennium Communications Group, uh, which Marcia Sharp ran, and she was right. one of the first women who had started Hager Sharp. So very huge mentor of mine. 
And she was really all about strategy. So I was sort of like, I could publicize anything, but I didn't really understand like, well, what was the point of that? Other than like big clipbook, that was my strategy. So she was like, (laughs) well, let's back it up and I'll teach you a few more things. And so I had this great woman mentor. And, uh, but David Fenton really wanted me to come back. And I negotiated really hard with him. Mm -hmm. Um, And I said, I was only coming back if he hired a general manager um, because he was a brilliant person and not necessarily a great manager. Um, and so I got back and the surprise was that I was in fact the general manager. So I kept my <laughs> own commitment to myself and that's where I learned management. And so moved up to chief operating officer and eventually the president. And then I started to get fired. But uh, Fenton Communications is well known as, well, you could call it a proving ground. But a lot of people have come through that shop. Very talented people. Uh, what was it about that place that was exciting or challenging i mean it's everything because it's communications but what did you learn over that time where were the give me a funny story from fenton i'm sure you've got at least a couple i definitely have a lot of funny stories about fenton um i will say you know at the time and they say now you know edelman and their trust barometer or mckinsey and their values thing you know they're saying like brands really need to be mission driven now people want that like I think we all wanted it back then too. I, you know, I wanted to be working and I think everybody did. I don't think anybody was like, God, I really hope I get to wake up and work on toothpaste today. Like, I don't know who those people are. I've never met them. Um, So I think Fenton, you know, really draws a mission driven crowd and you do get to work with just amazing clients. Um, And one of my funnier stories at uh, Fenton was that uh, my friends used to call me because I was an intern and they would make up that they were different people. Um, you know, they were Michael Jackson, they were Prince, they were, you know, really funny people all the time calling through the switchboard to get to me. And so my boss had actually gone up, David had gone up to New York. Um, we had found the person who had sold pot to Dan Quayle. And we were going to be getting the jailhouse <laughs> interview. Um, and he had gone up to New York to, you know, talk about this because, you know, very important to David that marijuana become legal. Um, and uh, so I get a call. And it says, Peter Jennings, the anchor for many, many, many years, was on the phone. And I was like, okay, that's it. So I got on the phone. I was like, okay, Peter, I'm so glad you called because I saw you on the newscast last night. I got to tell you, your hair is a disaster. Like for all the money you're getting paid. <laughs> and I went on for some time just to like really let my friends know that I was not putting up with this anymore. And to which uh, Mr. Jennings nicely said, um, I'm so sorry you don't care for my hair. I'm actually trying to get to your boss. Um, I think he's actually peddling a story that's not exactly true. I wanted to catch him. I understand he's in New York. And I was like, oh, my gosh. But I have to say, he was a real class act. Uh, the next day, uh, I did get flowers delivered to me. I'm sure he realized, like, I was this horrified yeah. intern, thought I was going to lose my job. Um, and he said that he thought that it was very good that um, I was uh, I was so media literate. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, of course, he's nice because he's, uh, as we all know, he's Canadian. That's true. Good point. But by the way, we are recording backstage at, at Frank. So every so often a noise may happen. So don't be, don't be scared. Um. <laughs> Possibly also Canadian because she just said sorry for that, even though we're in her backstage area. That's amazing. Yes. Canadians, they're everywhere. They're very it's nice. It's um, okay. So, so how, and how long were you at Fenton before you, how, how long did it take you to rise to the presidency? I think total, I was seven to eight years total at Fenton. And so that's not a lot of time to go from intern to president. Well, you know, you went away and then you came back. I went away. I had a, a little break. But as you were mentioning, I mean, it was a real proving ground. And I think actually, you know, we've heard a lot this morning about passing the torch. And I will say that every time somebody left, um, honestly, I would be looked at for promotion. And I have to say, like, that was a really interesting thing. Like, I tell people, even though Fenton, you know, as many consulting shops are, it was, you know, difficult. I mean, I worked pretty round the clock. I had a lot of clients. Um, a lot of demands. Um, and but the truth is, you know, I started Spitfire when I was 33 years old. Like I would not have been, you know, it's really hard to start a business. And, you know, I've had this business now for 17 years, but I learned a lot on the job, like very seriously, a lot. I remember when you started Spitfire. Well, yes. first you're on your year of where you called yourself a lady of leisure. It's true. I did have a hammock actually on my business card that year. It was a good year. <laughs> because you had to take a year off, I do believe. Yes, I was under a non-compete. And uh, so I hung out. You know, no one has ever um, valued me well enough to require me not to compete. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, you still have time. Yes, I'm under a please compete. I see. The, you know, I see. People just want me to compete uh, because they'll win. 
so it, it's amazing to me that, and then you started this, you know, Spitfire is a, is a machine. It's a machine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you mean that in a really nice Tesla kind of way. I mean it in a Tesla sort of way. It, it, it whirs, uh, although you don't have to recharge it every 200 miles. It's, but it's a, it's a big shop with a lot of people and a lot of responsibility. And I know you spend much, if not most of your time elsewhere from maybe where you want to be with your husband. But what, what is it like to, like, why did you pick, why'd you do that? What, couldn't you just have done your excellent ways in, in another, in another form? Why did you build this monolith? Yeah. It's a it's a great question, and I do on the anniversary of Spitfire. Nobody knows this on my team. This is our little secret. Okay, um, I won't tell. In July, I generally will stop and take a moment and ask myself, "Do I want to do this for another year?" Um, and the truth is, it's a really selfish reason, which is this is how I scale my values. Um, you know, people will say to me like, "Oh, you know, staff leave after a couple of years. There's turnover. There's this. There's that." But to me, this is a training ground where people come in. More than anything, we need really good communicators. And if they can come in and hopefully be treated really well and get to work on unbelievably interesting issues with a lot of different people and gain skills really fast, you know, I really feel like that is, that is what I'm supposed to be doing. So while it would certainly be easier to just do this on my own and I could do a lot of my job on my own, I really feel like, you know, Spitfire is supposed to be a place where people really do learn, whether they come and work with us, whether they whether we do capacity building with them. I feel like that is something that I was meant to do. And it's in fact when I started Spitfire, I, you know, was looking at a lot of other shops at the time and I thought, I'll just bring in my clients to them. I, you know, I had clients, but I really wanted to do the capacity building. I thought this is important is that people figure out how to do this for themselves. Um, and so to me, that's a lot of what Spitfire stands for. I hope we do high quality work. I hope we get a lot of results. That's important to me too. But I like to look out there into the field and say, there are a lot of people who got the skills that they need to do the thing that they want to do most um, to pursue their own dreams and mission. Um, and so I don't expect I get to borrow them. I know I don't get to have them forever, <laughs> but I love the people I've gotten yeah. to hang out with. Well, you've had great people, but I, I mean, I feel like I'm the selfish one because I'm just one guy in a sandwich and I don't have the energy, the time or the commitment to, to hire people and to have to be a manager and things like that. I, 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 so I really do salute you for that. Um, what, what are, uh, as you look back, I mean, you're still looking forward, that's for sure, but just taking stock of, of where you are in your career and, and the work that you've done, what is like one of the one or two things that, that you're really proud of? That you're listening to Let's Hear so It, a podcast about foundation yeah. and nonprofit um, communications I, hosted by Kirk Brown and I'd Eric Brown. Let's Hear It is made possible through the generous support of the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation and the Lumina Foundation. You can find Let's Hear It online at letshearitcast.com or on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. If you're enjoying the show, please rate us on iTunes so more people can find us. Thanks for listening. And now back to the show. Just because. It seems really important. And I would say I'm really proud. My my team has worked for almost 10 years on net neutrality. <laughs> and I will just say like, A, worst name ever, right? Net neutrality. You're like, why didn't you change the name? Like, good question. We tried. Um, but I do think this is one of those things where it started off as this really niche issue over the years with a lot of advocates and a lot of partners. Uh, we have just really been able to explain to people this kind of arcane media policy, which now when you look at everything, you look at everything that's happening online, you know, net neutrality is one of those things that really made people understand that tech policies actually impact their daily lives. Like, can you get an education? You know, can you get access to the things that you need? Um, and so I know it sounds sort of funny, but it, it really is a proud moment that we sort of took a sideline issue and put it front and center. And we did actually have it secured. Um, and of course, now, you know, we're fighting for it again. So, um, you know, maybe the thing that I don't finish in my lifetime, which seems kind of weird. Here lies Grim, <laughs> pro net neutrality. That's right. She thought net neutrality was a good idea. Please leave flowers. That's right. I think that's good. Oh, the, uh, the smart chart changed my life. I mean, it, it's really true that, and you gave it away. Right. Or you made it, you made it available for anybody. Yep. Which is not what people do. So I thank you for that. And. Uh, most of, most of the people I work with, they know the smart chart and they use it. I mean, it's, it, you, I think you have had a huge, a huge difference on our field. Um, 
what we've been talking at this conference a lot about the next generation or whether it's making room or bringing along the next generation of communications leaders and just people, leaders in the field. What are the pieces of advice that you give people, young people in particular, people who want to get into this, into this field? Yeah, for, for people who really want to start doing communication at whatever age, but they're suddenly like, I really want to become a good communicator. I think that's how I can make my difference. Um, I really try and get people to focus on the communication conundrums. I find a lot of effort is wasted on not really understanding what's that next barrier standing in your way. Like maybe you're looking way down and you're like, I need to get over here. And you're communicating in a way that is just not connecting. But it's also like not noticing like this is the barrier. Like you keep trying to walk forward and you knock into the barrier. And you're like, but I want to get there. But it's like, then communicate about this barrier that's sitting right in front of you. Um, so I do think, and it goes back to the smart chart and this is stuff I study all the time. And it's just something I always want to share with the field. It's like, I don't want that to be a secret. It's not my secret right. that someone has to pay me for. It's like, if I can say, this is your communication conundrum, because the people coming in right now are so talented. It is like, all you want to do is just give them space and say to them, I got you. Like, use your talents, come here, confidence. And by the way, when you make mistakes, we're going to laugh about it really hard. Like, because it's going to happen. <laughs> but what we really want everybody to do is to feel like they are literally going to do that. They're going to go running at it and try and leap over it because we need it, right? Poverty still around, you know, inequality still around. Um, so I think a lot of it is about trusting yourself and getting into a place. I always, when people call me about different jobs, I'm always like, what's their boss like? You know, like, are they going to give you that space to go? And are they going to push you and like, say, go do bigger things? Um, and not, not let you off the hook. Cause I think just, gosh, what energy and talent we've got coming up. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm feel optimistic for the future. I really do too. Even though the present kind of sucks. I still I feel optimistic about the future. I do think the next generation is just better than, than we are. And I'm, I'm happy about that. What is your barrier? these days? I mean, if you're thinking, if you get, if, if you give people advice about understanding what, what the current barrier is, what, what do you think yours is right now? Yeah. Um, my biggest barrier is that I really did come up in really hard for advocacy where I was very focused on winning. Um, and I get paid to win. Um, and, um, as I think, you know, in 2017, after everything fell apart and I started marching every weekend, um, I was like, I just can't march every weekend. And so I told my husband we were getting a trailer and we were off to see the country to find out what what the heck was going on. And, you know, I don't camp. So my husband's like, really, four months? That's, <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun with my not camping wife. Um, so, but what I really realized in going and talking to people everywhere, I mean, campgrounds are a great equalizer, right? And what I really found out was we do have a tremendous amount in common. But what I also realized is that I personally, when I think like, oh, I've impacted people in these positive ways, I have also led to the polarization and partisanship mm -hmm. of this nation, including things like othering people. Like in order to win, I said these things and it was like a short-term win. Um, and so I'm really reflective of communications in the short term, you can post wins. But if they alienate the very people that are actually going to have to be there, so it's actually sticky and stays, and I just realized that my own practice actually had this gigantic downside. And so I'm, I'm really starting to be very mindful, even though it's slower work um, and it does take a lot of constituency building and a lot of trust. And it means working with people that generally I would be like, I'm not working with them. I can win without them. But the point is, I can't win long term right. without them. Um, and so that's just something I'm really reflecting on. And it's, it's, it's changing and evolving my practice of communications. That's such a great point because. Yeah, you can win the war, but you have to win the peace, right? Yeah. And we spend more time defending our victories than we do getting our winning our victories. That's a, that's a really good point. I, I'm, I don't know if you've read it yet, but I'm hooked. I've been talking a lot about Larry, my old boss, Larry Kramer's piece on listening to people who disagree with you. Yes. I don't know if you read it. What, I did. What, what you're, is that something that's consistent with what you just said there? And, and can you just talk about how, how you reacted to it? Absolutely. I, I just think this whole idea of, if you're going to say that, perspectives matter, then that actually means everyone's perspectives matter. And really understanding, well, why do they feel that way? You know, when I'm in a lot of rural economies, I really do try and understand, well, why do they feel that way? Or like, well, if I'm in with parents in urban areas, well, why do they feel that way? Um, you know, and, and a lot of times I'm talking to people about government, and I know your boss also wants people to see government as the positive role it can be. 
And yes, he's trying to make Congress great again. That's right. Which, which you know, would be great. Like, you know, who doesn't want that? Um, certainly helps to have more women there. It's, it's giving you a fighting chance. Yeah. Um, but I do think that um, if you if you want that, if you if you really want people to think that the government is good, you have to be willing to talk to a lot of different people. We are an incredibly diverse nation. It's like, you know, when people are like, let's get rid of the Electoral College. I'm like, yeah, but you know what? Wyoming doesn't actually want to be governed by New York, California, Texas, and Florida. Like, that is not what they want. Right. right. And so, so you have to say, okay, so if we want to be this nation, like, we actually have to figure out how to get along. And maybe getting along is actually one of our goals. And I don't know that that's ever been stated to me ever. Like, no one's ever hired me. Like, okay, we can get along better, <laughs> but maybe those are some projects we should get onto. Getalong.com. Uh, who do you turn to? It's lonely. They, they often say it's lonely at the top. Uh, it's it's hard to walk around the office and say, oh, I don't really understand something uh, to folks who work for you. Who do you turn to for advice and whatever affirmation? Where do you get your information and how do you, who do you deal with to you know, work out your issues? Professional issues. I see you, you you're I making have, things like my baggage. I you got have, you. You have no personal issues. I have yeah, no personal issues. I mean, I have no problems whatsoever, right? I am, yes, perfect in every way, don't they say? Um, no, I, uh, yes, it's very hard. I think it's hard being a leader. It's hard being a woman leader in a business that has largely been male. It is, it's hard being in a city that's actually quite male dominated as well. A lot of power dynamics. Um, and you're in DC. I'm in DC. Yeah. And um, so I was really lucky. Um, a couple of years ago, I was named a Henry Crown Fellow at the Aspen Institute. And um, and it was two years, and they sort of sent these very thick books, and they were like, here, read Plato. And I was like, really? <laughs> like, I don't really have time for that. Um, but I got there, and it was really about just understanding, like, Seneca on the shortness of life. Like, well, what does that mean for you now and how you're using your time? And it was a really like, huh. But one of the things that was great for me as a consultant is I was in a room of, you know, 20 or so people, and I didn't have to have the answer. Like I am expected, like literally the morning after the election, I have people calling me to be like, what does this mean for our issue? And I'm like, I'm in the fetal <laughs> position at that moment. You know, I'm like, I don't know. Like I'm going to go, you know, do something else. But I suddenly had 20 best friends, all leaders, different walks of life. And what was really interesting is everybody is really committed to building the good society. And so suddenly you're really thinking about yourself. And this is what actually made me reflective about, well, what am I doing? I was always so big on what I was doing to make it better. And I wasn't so big on really reflecting on where am I maybe not? Mm -hmm. walking my talk. Wait, maybe where am I, you know, actually the cause of the misery. And um, so it's been great. It's been great to be in a leadership program. It lasted two years, but we are super dear friends and we uh, continue to hang out and we WhatsApp every day. So it's nice to have, <laughs> it's nice to have a crew like that that you can just go to. Do you have any big regrets? Something you <laughs> wish you just did differently? I, I, yes, I'm sure that I have really big regrets. Anyone's you, any you any that are I willing want to, to share, share with on a broadcast with you? <laughs> um, I I mean honestly, I think my my biggest regret is sort of ongoing in that, um, and we just you and I just got to hear a really good speech about giving space. And again, sort of coming up at a time where I feel like my management style was like, I was supposed to be in the room full of men, you know, don't cry at work. Like people know in my office, like, don't go to Crystal's office and cry. Like I was sort of brought up like that um, of like, you know, you have to be really tough at work. And, you know, so suddenly when people are like, oh, you need to be an empathetic leader. I'm like, no, 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 no. I was supposed to be this other kind of leader where you don't cry at the office. And um, so, um, so I do think I have a regret, which is that I feel like I had to take on a way of being. Um, that one was inauthentic for me. So I regret it personally, but I think also it's not always the best management style. And so I'm really, you know, I, I try and evolve my management style um, all the time. So I'm in constant coaching <laughs> and um, <laughs> I have a lot of coaches and, um, and I, I really value that though, because I do think that, you know, it, that's a huge responsibility to have a lot of people who, you know, you are there providing their workplace. And also I'm a partner to a lot of people and I'm a counselor to a lot of funders. And I take that all really seriously to say, you know what, I, I need to be doing better. So I would say I, I have these like huge regrets, micro regrets. And, and mostly, though, I sort of regret that I never had leadership training until much later. Mm -hmm. And yet, as I told you, like I was literally running Fenton when I was 28 and I started my own company at whatever, 33. And so 
I've been in charge uh, with really no license for being in charge. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, I mean, uh, so much of it is confidence, though, isn't it? Because people say, tell me what to do, Kristen, and then you have to say something. And it d may not necessarily matter whether the thing that you're saying is the one thing to do, but people just need to be led. They need to be, they need to know that you have confidence with this recommendation and that therefore they can move forward and try something. Because I think people just want somebody to be author you know, authoritative. Yes. And so as a consultant, I had that in spades. But what I'm also saying is I also chose to also be a manager. Right. And, and to set culture and to set values and to hold us accountable for values and being willing, therefore, to do it myself. And I would just say those are really different skill sets. And I think for a long time, I thought the one just immediately translated over. Um, but, you know, we, you know, we do Myers-Briggs and everybody has to move around the room when there are little letter changes. I am an ENTJ, which is the general, and I'm the furthest general you can be. So like, <laughs> I'm at my own table in an extreme area. And at first, you know, you sort of look around and you're like, God, I wonder why more people aren't, you know, what more people should be over near me. Like that, as opposed to like, oh, I'm going to have to really figure out how to work because I, right. Like they don't understand me. Like they, like, I don't make sense to them sometimes. So like when, you know. My staff jokes, they, they come into my office and I'm just sitting there because as an ENTJ, all I'm looking for is like, they start to talk and I'm like, do you have a recommendation? Do you need a decision? Do you have like, oh, that's all I'm doing. And like people know, like they, you know, one line emails, if you send me a couple, multiple paragraphs, I write back and I say yes. Um, and they're not sure as to what. Um, so it's really been a huge enlightening thing to create a feedback within the firm that allows people to be like, yeah, you know what? That doesn't actually help me. Like that, right. your your management or non-management in this case is actually not letting me do a good job and being really open to how do you create a culture where people can do a phenomenal job when you're hiring lots of different types of people. Yeah. So it's just, yeah, I, so coaching happens every week for me. <laughs> so um, to this day, so I don't ever feel like, oh, boss, check, got it. I feel like I have a privilege of working with great people and I am supposed to be a great colleague. And I am very committed to that. So that's all I'm going to tell you about my regrets, although we could sit here all day and go through all my management missteps. No, no, no. This was... I'm saving it for the that book. Was, that was brave and generous. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Kristen Grimm, she has a regret. I want to talk... Uh, you've taught me so much about communication strategy. And I just want to like finish up this last little part uh, talking about strategy. How do you approach... Do you have a, how do you approach a given problem? I mean, I know the smart chart, we all know the smart chart, but what, what are, what are you thinking about when a client comes to you and, you know, you're working on net neutrality? How, how do you start to, to take apart the pieces and begin to craft some work plan when a client comes to you with something like that? Sure. And this has really evolved, I would say, in the last two years. So one is I really stepped back. I used to sort of start with the organization and I would, I would get very, very smart charty, actually. Um, and now I actually come at it from an ecosystem. So I try not to think of them yet. I try and come back and say, oh, you know, carbon dioxide removal, really important. We're not going to stay under two degrees without carbon dioxide removal and certainly not 1.5, which is really where we need to be right. for anyone listening. <laughs> so um, so when, when it's like, okay, we need to make this part of the solution. It needs to have a higher profile. You know, normally you start to really think about, well, like, how can we help, you know, World Resources Institute do that or whoever we're working with? And now I step back and I say, you know what? I want to understand who's having the different conversations that are, in fact, impacting our approach to climate. And now this is suddenly all sorts of people. You know, it's like, oh, you've got the science community like IPCC. You've got Congress. You've got these businesses. You know, you've got the insurers who are over here. And suddenly it's like, OK, well, so where would we need to insert and who could I insert? And then I'm finally getting down more to, so what role will this organization play in this thing? Because I think everybody sort of starts with like, I'm this person, I want to have these conversations, so let's get to messaging. And it's like, okay, well, let's first even see like, well, where are the, like, are we starting conversations? Are we shaping conversations? Are we redirecting conversations? Like, what's going on? Um, and so I think it's just, um, so to me, that's a really important strategic look, which I think, especially when you're sort of doing movements. Um, and long-term social change, it's actually really important to have that view because otherwise I think you're you're really underestimating what you're up against. You're certainly underestimating who your allies and partners are. And often you're just doing the exact same thing you've been doing for a long time. So it's like, well, if you've been doing this and you haven't been getting the profile or the reach or the amplification you want, like the very first thing is to like, what are we missing? 
Um, and so I, that's a pretty big strategic shift for me, I'd say, in the last two years. I would think that that can be hard because a client may think that they are at the epicenter of the solution when they may not necessarily. It, it sounds like you, you may be telling them, hey, look, this is, the role, this is your specific role to play in a larger context. And they might not always want to hear that. Is that true? I, I, I certainly have conversations with them. I do think almost all the clients ultimately really want to be effective. And I think if you can come in and sort of say, this is actually when you're understanding of your reality, it's a whole lot easier to be navigating in it than going blind. And I think for the most part, they know that. But again, going back to our uh, strength of confidence, it's also sometimes if I say it, <laughs> then they'll be like, oh, absolutely. Yeah. They'll, they'll, you know, I think this is the nice thing about being a consultant, actually. And I think sometimes, you know, staff who work in the organization are like, I have been saying this for five years. And like, I come in saying the exact same thing. And, you know, so it's really important to be like, I really think, you know, your staffer sitting here has been saying this and I completely agree with them. <laughs> That's probably a good way to go about that. Do you say your thinking has evolved on this? What, what, what made it evolve? What were you looking for that you saw or what the, were you not looking for that all of a sudden appeared to you like, oh, wait, I missed that. Yeah. When I was um, really starting to get into more narrative work and really understanding, like, even if you think about net neutrality, which sort of started among a very small group of very, you know, media policy focused, and you're suddenly like, wow, we really need the civil rights groups to be more active on this. And we like you start to understand that there's a diffusion of innovation, right, of an idea. And one, a lot of times I found that people were asking me to push solutions and like there wasn't even really demand for a solution because the problem wasn't well known. Maybe the problem was being rejected. So it was like really understanding where is the conversation happening? What is the shape of the conversation? Um, it really helped you to think about it. So for me, it was more about a lot of times people were asking me to engage audiences and move them to an action. But nobody was really saying like, so where are they now? And like, how are we actually moving? So people always say like, Go to where they are. Like, right. this is what it means is like to actually understand, but also to start to project out like, oh, if you do it this way, like if you think about the pipeline work, imagine if instead of all the environmental activists who were very important on that work of Keystone Pipeline, if instead of them coming out first, all the ranchers right. where the pipeline was going to go through came out first, we would had a completely different conversation. And I argue, I think maybe a more successful one ultimately. Right. We wouldn't have gotten into the environment versus jobs or, you know, where we end up. So I think that's just so important is you can actually uh, you can actually predict some of those things. So I think it's a really smart thing to do is to do a little more predicting as to how things are actually going to move so that you can um, help them and facilitate them in a good way. I always listen, love listening to you talk, Kristen. <laughs> you always you you continue to teach me so much. Do you have any advice out there for our felt brethren and sistren in the communications field, just in general, how how they can better ways for them to improve their work or to think about how they do their jobs? I really recommend, and I'm trying this, so you know you can hold me accountable, right. and I'll hold you accountable if you agree. Give it a shot. I am really liking the idea of no meetings Tuesday. No meetings Tuesday. And I honestly think if we all did it as a field, <laughs> we could have a lot more impact because if none of us would meet, then it would be difficult. But my point is that actually communications take some very serious thinking time. I think when we, we started in the business and we were faxing, blast faxing, thank God those days are over. Yeah. But when I think about how fast everything needs to move and that people think I can do a narrative project in a week and, you know, and I'm supposed to be able to think of all these different issues all the time, I really do think that we all need to schedule and defend think space. And so that is what I really ask for others too. Because I kind of think like a lot of times uh, we, we do, I know you love baseball analogies. I feel like we do unforced errors because we're moving that's so fast and we hockey. haven't. No, maybe that's tennis. I don't know. I thought an unforced error was baseball. Like some of the people. Anyway, you know what? You know, you're in all those leagues. I'm <laughs> just saying there's something about an unforced error, which is basically yeah. you do it yourself, right? You do it to yourself. And I think we need to be thinking a little further ahead, a little couple of steps ahead and say, this is a good idea as opposed to this isn't. So we will leave that. Don't just do something. Sit there. Exactly. I'm all for that. Sit there. Think about it. Just me and my sandwich and my little doggy. Um, no meetings Tuesday. No meetings. I'm, I won't even meet with my dog. <laughs> well, you know, Tuesday. I don't really think those are meetings. I think that's They're companionship. But Eric, I think that's probably a topic for a different... <laughs> Uh, different podcast, but I'd be happy to come back and hear hear your regrets. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you don't have time. 
No, we could do one about my mother's regrets. <laughs> we'll look forward to <laughs> That's that. another one. Thank you so much. Kristen Grimm, Spitfire Strategies, my personal hero. Thank you. Eric with Kristen Grimm. Oh my goodness, there's a lot to cover there. Um, before we dig in, <laughs> she talks so damn fast. Oh, she's great. This is no. like 90 minutes of content and a 30 minute talk. Yeah. And again, you know, you guys are backstage at the conference. So I think we should help our guests uh, do some self promotion. So Kristen is on Twitter. Her, her handle is at Head Spitfire, interestingly. And you can find Spitfire, of course, at SpitfireStrategies.com. But I wanted to do a little research into Kristen, so I went to the internet. Oh. And of course, anything you find on the internet, it's all true, right? So here's this from Glassdoor. Ooh. Once a Spitfire, always a Spitfire. Uh. It was a true privilege to be a Spitfire. Kristen Grimm is truly the best in the business when it comes to strategy and communications for nonprofits and foundations. She's assembled a world-class team of strategists from a wide variety of backgrounds, each of whom is a superstar in their own right. How is that? That's what the internet has to say about Kristen. And then I went- Well, Kristen is an excellent writer, as you can see. <laughs> yeah, that's right. She does great work. And then here's what, here's what Influence Watch had to say. Because uh-huh. Kristen is, is, is identified on Influence she's, Watch. She's, yeah, she's an influencer. She's got influence. Spitfire Strategies is a Washington, D.C.-based political consulting and strategy firm. The firm was founded by Kristen Grimm, a Democratic Party operative and campaign strategist who also serves on the board of, board of directors of left-leading groups like the Windward Fund. So that's what Influence Watch has to say about Kristen. Yeah. I would say about Kristen, and I think it comes across in your your discussion, smart, sharp, and absolutely knowing, like so much insight. And um, yeah, no, that's right. So, and again, back to that first thank you. So, talk a little bit more about that because honestly, I've seen Kristen's work influence many, many people in the field. Frankly, across different communications firms mm-hmm. too, and uh, so just you know. Your journey at Hewlett, talk a little bit about, because you guys really made good use, I thought, of the smart chart. So just yeah. talk about how that, that practice has influenced you know, that work, because I think it goes on from oh. there, too. Yeah. I mean, everything I've learned about communication strategy began when I learned about the smart chart, and she mm. helped to – she designed it. I think Chris Cardi funded it, mm, sure. um, and and part of the – Part of that whole project was to make it available for free to anybody. And it was always the thing that I would turn to in order to figure out how to do a communication strategy or how to work with a grantee. And so much so that the program officers at the Hewlett Foundation, many of them had a copy on their desk and they would ask questions to their grantees that would align with the smart chart. And it was just good communication strategy. And it's simple, it's straightforward, and it's easy to use. And that's the kind of tool that you need in order to actually implement it. If it's something is really complicated, it doesn't get used. So the smart chart has inf- informed all my thinking, and now I, tra- <laughs> now I charge people money to, to, do, to do a version of it. Uh, of course, you have to <laughs> walk people in. A, I mean, you know, it's not just, you know, here, take this test. Right. But, yeah. uh, it, it, it really has shaped my thinking. But it was so interesting because I asked her that question about what, what she has learned, and she, she talked about the context in which work occurs. Now, she says she looks at the ecosystem mm-hmm. in which an organization is is working and that she does, doesn't go straight to goals anymore, which I found to be really interesting. And the fact that here, you know, she's it's not that she's um, she's disavowing the smart chart, but she says that it's not enough and that you have to really understand where an organization is in the context of the change that it's trying to make. And that may seem like an obvious thing, but nothing is obvious anymore. You really have to pay attention. And that's, I I thought that was really, really, really cool. Well, it raises the stakes, I would say, in the whole concept of goals, you know, and I think that she really nailed it and named it when she talked about having been in the business of winning for so long. And again, Kristen's one Spitfire wins, but then talking about the othering what a great word, you know, yeah. that goes along with that. And so it's, it, what are your goals really? And, you know, at my various practices, we've always said, 
the cause has to be the client. The cause is yeah. actually our client. It's not you, the organization, because if we're just working at the organizational level, we're two rungs too low on the org chart, if you will. You know, so if you're looking at goals from the standpoint of a cause sensibility, now you're going to rearrange all of your thinking. But what, but you know, the other thing that struck me though about Kristen's reflections there, and by the way, the concept of her going across the country camping with her husband in a trailer. (laughs) So were were you a Mad Men junkie too? Did you watch Mad Men or no? Yes. So this is the, this is the last episode of Mad Men. Spoiler alert, spoiler alert. But (laughs) but this is, this is the last episode of Mad Men, right? Like this catastrophic thing happens and you've got to get out of town. You've got to get out and get some perspectives, right? So the way that all that comes together, I just feel like. I think that's the day after. Kirk. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's the, you got there the you wrong go. show. Yeah, right. That's right. After. Wrong script. But it strikes me, you know, goes off. Everybody dies. Kristen gets to this point in her career where she's able to reflect at this cause level, and it just it just struck me that you know these organizations like Spitfire that can work across so many different institutions and different campaigns. There's a whole other dimension of the value of those organizations that I feel like almost gets lost, given how we're constructed and structured because who's going to hire Kristen and maybe people do. And I hope they do to basically just give us the benefit of all of this thinking. Right. Yeah. You know, so yeah. um, it was, that part was really, was really cool to hear you guys talk yeah. about. And she does uh, every summer. Now she gets in her camper and drives around the country, <laughs> and, uh, which I find hilarious. <laughs> and she works from the camper. It's true. Uh, that's... Although she, what did she say? She's, <laughs> They sometimes have to park in front of a library. So, <laughs> so they, they can get Wi-Fi? <laughs> they can get good Wi-Fi, yeah. which is so, great. The other thing that struck me, so in the in the context of saying thank you and also acknowledging where some of this thinking work comes from, so you guys are doing this backstage at the Frank Conference. Can mm-hmm. you please talk a little bit about the Frank Conference and even Frank himself? Because again, this was, I felt like there yeah. was another thank you wrapped around the thank yous, right, that are happening here. Yeah, it's interesting. I Frank Carell was the communications director at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and he founded modern communicate strategic communications for foundations. Yeah, he's it. You can we all trace our lineage to Frank Carell. <laughs> yeah. We do, <laughs> yeah. and and he was a great guy. I did have the opportunity to meet him. He passed away some years ago, but when mm. uh, he was either. He had left Robert Wood Johnson, but he was still very much involved. He helped found the communications network, and he helped fund a chair, an endowed chair at the University of Florida in social interest communications. I think I have that right. Public interest communications, sorry. Mm. That Ann Cristiano, who worked with Frank at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, ended up being that, sitting in that endowed chair. Uh, And... Frank's influence has flowed down to all of us, and it flowed down to David Morse, who I also interviewed and who will be on this um, show in early 2023 <laughs> when we get the backlog of episodes up. Uh, it, David Morse succeeded Frank, uh, and it certainly has been found in anybody who's ever been to a communications network conference, who has ever been to... Um, who who is sitting in a in a job at a foundation in which communications is considered to be an integral part of the institution strategy, not just the thing that you did with the report. Mm. And that was that was really Frank's influence. Another kind of little sideline is that I didn't know that that Chris DeCarty, who is the vice president for programs at the Packard Foundation and who was previously its communications director, and he got kicked yeah. upstairs many years ago. Right. Chris hired Chris was at Fenton and he hired Kristen when she was an intern. I did not know that story. <laughs> and Chris, who who I knew when he was at Environmental Media Services in DC, yep. which is the DC version of EMS West, which became Resource Media, which you ran. Right. Exactly. Is everybody following the cross-eyed <laughs> hemophiliac nature of this of this work? <laughs> Chris helped me get the job at the Hewlett Foundation. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm I'm getting dizzy just thinking about it. But the another way of thinking about it is, and and really where Frank's influence was so great was that he really um, encouraged networking and interconnectedness and sharing of ideas and spending time talking with each other to learn more about what we do. 
I think that you know if Frank is looking down right now, he's he's. I'd I'd hope he he felt good that he has had so much influence, and it's not just influence into the day to day lives of people, but into as, as you say the service of the work that we do, the right. people whose lives we're trying to improve the conditions in the world that you're trying to make better all that kind of all that kind of make the world a better place stuff but it actually i think is is true he's he's had an incredible influence and i you know and Kristen takes that seriously and she's generous and pays it forward and you do and chris Cardi certainly did does and david more you know a lot of these people we next Okay, um, next week, which means two years ago, <laughs> the interview with Grant Oliphant yeah, will come right. out. And he's really another one of those people who's in this kind of bloodstream. Now, yeah. the real thing is bringing new people uh, into this field and yes. helping them succeed and, and you know, in some senses, s- making space for them to thrive. And I think that getting back to your question, because I forgot about it and then remembered uh, <laughs> which was, what was Frank about. Yeah. I think Frank is fundamentally about making space for new ideas, new ways of thinking, new approaches to looking at how do you use communications to make the world better and things like that. And that, that conference is it's kind of like the TED and that people come up, they give a 10 minute talk. It's all done in plenary in a little theater in Gainesville. Mm. You have to get to Gainesville, which yeah. is, you know, a thing. Right. Um, but it is a, it's a, a completely different type of experience from one that you would have at the communications network, which is also a great experience, but different. Yeah. And they're both incredibly valuable. Yeah. And I learn so much and I see people that I've never heard of. And that, that's really, that's really important. It's hard to, I always make it a New Year's resolution every year like, to, to meet people I don't know Yeah, and find out things that I didn't know about. And not knowing what you don't know is hard. You know what? I'm convincing you. We're on a journey of discovery. I finally proved it. I'm going to mark this down. <laughs> this is a journey of discovery. So, you got some so, really horrible music to play now. Yeah, exactly. It's time. Look for the streaks. So, Kirk Brown's can, journey of discovery. I hope that you can convince Chris DiCardi to come on this podcast sometime. I really look forward to it. I, but I... If I can't, but then I'm hanging it, up. I'm hanging up my mind. We're just going to camp out in front of his house. But then also, you know, Kristen talks about, you know, Chris hires Kristen as an intern. And this is if you're listening to this podcast, or you're new to this field, beat a path to D.C. and work for free. You know, I mean, I just I just think mm-hmm. that that part of the process in D.C. is an incubator, a place to sort of go and grow. Uh, and then if you, if you can, can afford leave, to work for free, yes, if you can afford, problem, good point, as, as we well know, good point. No, really important. And, um, and all of us who, many of us who did that, I know for me, it was like, there was stuff I was doing at night and in the morning so I could do other stuff during the day. Right. Like, so it ends up being kind of a deal, but if you can get that DC experience and it's just so helpful. Um, I also thought it was interesting, you know, you asked Kristen about kind of where she goes to get advice and even seek affirmation. Yeah. And, and you talked about being a woman leader in this field and in DC and oh my gosh, there, there's just so many things going on there. And she talked about the Henry crown fellowship at the Aspen Institute. Right. And I loved hearing about that. And, you know, if we could be foundation heads of the world for a day, I would love to encourage every foundation leader in the world to invest in leadership support like that and in internship support because of the reason you just identified, which is very few of us can actually go someplace and work for free. But the idea that Kristen as a leader in this field, that she could actually be put in a cohort with a bunch of people that it sounds like she still really values that, that time together. I just was really, I had never heard of the Henry crown fellowship program before, and it just was really exciting to hear about it and i was glad that you know, we got some you know it's interesting that. though the, the the flipping that on its head this intern pay, work for free thing is a, this really ought to be a challenge as well to mm. christian and the other big firms and anybody who can who can do this is to bring on interns and pay them something so that right. they can learn on the job and they don't have to work for free and this is this allows people who don't have the means they don't have rich fa- families they can't nobody's going to put them up that to to get them started there's another i would say smaller lighter version of this which is that for the people out there the you's and me's of the world we really have to cultivate 
people that we can teach, whom we can teach. Yeah. And, you know, whether it's a it's an intern of sorts, somebody is interested in learning more about communications and calls me, you know, I will speak with them. I will I will do whatever I can to help them come along. But I think we have to be as intentional as possible about that. Find people, teach them, let them fly and they will replace us. And that's a good thing. Um, so that's. I mean, that's what kind of my take on the next, how, what, what our responsibility is, given where we ended up. But I, I do have one thing that I wanted to do, a little funny game. Yeah. Um, the, Kristen said she was an ENTJ, which was the general. <laughs> uh, and, and I don't know if you looked, if, if you ever did this stuff. Or, yeah, yeah. Um, so I looked it up. Hannibal. You know, the Carthaginian general yeah. was an ENTJ. Oh, that's great. Um, although, wait, as, as I was thinking about those, like, did they sit Hannibal down? Did, like, HR <laughs> sit Hannibal down and say, okay, um, do, do you like to, do you get your energy from killing people yeah. or saving? Yeah. That kind of, I don't know how they know that Hannibal is an ENTJ. So right. the, 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 the internet is a little suspect on this one. But that's let's right. just say... For the sake of argument, that Hannibal was an ENTJ. So was Lance Armstrong, C. Everett Coop, Donald Rumsfeld, and Rudy Giuliani. Oh, goodness. And I suspect I'll go find one of Kristen's former employees who was like, yup, Rumsfeld and Giuliani. (laughs) On the the other hand, so so were Calvin Coolidge, Mm. Chester A. Arthur, Mike (laughs) Dukakis, and, and I think she will love to hear this, Peter Jennings. Oh, wow. The guy (laughs) she gagged on the phone was an ENTJ. So funny. I am an ENFP. I had to look it up. Hmm. I had to go back to one of these things. It was 2005 or so they did one. And what I found out that ENFPs are wildly creative. They are charismatic and exciting to be with. Um, oh. Although they are, they are also in they are scattered and directionless. <laughs> <laughs> but and and okay, get this: yeah. some of the ENFPs, Robin Williams. Oh wow! Yep. Doctor Seuss, mm-hmm. Mark Twain, Will Rogers, Buster Keaton, Andy Kaufman, Martin Short. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> although. James Dobson of Focus on the Family. Oh, wow. Yeah. Julian Assange. And a guy, so apparently like comedians are, are uh, ENFP. And here's this guy. I'm sure he did a fabulous tight 10 in the basement or, you know, in the in the comedy room at the Tripoli Hilton, Momar Gaddafi. Oh, my goodness. Oh, was my an God. ENFP. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah. I would like, news you can useless. Yeah, it would have been fascinating to be part of Gaddafi's uh, process of determining that for himself. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> wow. It's like, wow. All right, you know, two Libyans walk into a bar. Uh, Kirk, do you know what you are? You know, I, I, I know I've done it, but I, I can't, I don't have any recall recalling it. Yeah, How did don't, I have no, no, don't have any. I didn't either. I had to look it up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, what? Uh, anything else that we need to chat about as we prattle on? No, just thank you. I mean, thank you to Chris. You know, it's funny that the one last thing I'll say is that it struck me. You know, you've I, you and I have always had this joke about the five families, like the really large yes. firms that support. And yeah. now at this point of the podcast, it's you, me, and a tomato listening to this, but. Listening to Kristen, a, a ripe, yeah, no, actually, right. it's a winter, it's a gray, <laughs> yeah, rotten right. winter right. tomato. Right. We should try to get all the five family heads to do their own interviews on this podcast. But then those are the channels; those organizations are the channels through which this whole idea of paid internships could happen. And some foundation somewhere should just pump tons of money into that so we could build the field. Because I agree, it's yeah. oxygen. We need oxygen. That's, yeah. You get you get done done, Kristen. <laughs> And <laughs> whoever else you want to look at the five families again. We got Cleveland that's, and Detroit. That's right. We that's got right. Washington DC. That's right. And we'll film it. Yeah, no, I think it'd be a great, be a great meeting. As long as nobody gets you, you check all your guns at the door. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Eric, that was really. And again, thank you to Kristen for doing it. Eric, thank you as always. It's just so fun to listen to. And um, man, that was great. I learned a lot. It was really cool. That was a fun one. All right. Well, we'll we'll see you in in, in two weeks or so <laughs> here in, in, in June of twenty seventy seven. Whenever this thing gets on. Okay, everybody. Thank you. 
Okay, everybody, that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have on this show. And that definitely includes yourself. And we'd like to thank John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music. Our sponsors, the Communications Network and the Lumina Foundation. And please check out Lumina's terrific podcast, Today's Students, Tomorrow's Talent, and you can find that at luminafoundation.org. Certainly thank today's guest, and of course, all of you. And most importantly, thank you, Mr. Brown. Oh, no, 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 no. Thank you, Mr. Brown. (laughs) Okay, everybody. Till next time. Let's hear it.